0: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A book that I really enjoy. I think I might uh, might even own two copies of it. It has a proud place on my bookshelf, and it is always, whenever I am looking for a gift to give a man, particularly a young man, I always give them the book The Modern Gentleman. Now, it's very amusing It's written in a very entertaining manner. But essentially, what this book is, it's a handbook. It's a guide to essential manners, savvy and vice. And I don't know what made me think about it today. But I said, let me see if I can reach out to the fellow that wrote this book and learn a little bit about him. Turns out, This fella is just as interesting as the book that he wrote, and I am thrilled that he's agreed to stay up with us late on the radio today. Jason Tesoro is a writer, photojournalist, sommelier, and, yes, indeed, the author of the book, The Modern Gentleman. Jason, thanks so much for
1: joining me. Thank you for having me, Frank.
0: Jason, what gave you the idea to write a book like the one that you did, The Modern Gentleman? First of all, was this your idea or was this a a publisher's idea or something?
1: No, this uh, this was a book that I needed to read, and at the time, it didn't exist. So we're, let's rewind the clock back. Uh, it's 2002, and the book was first published. It's been through subsequent printings and editions, but back in 2002 when the book came out, that was a culmination of nearly 10 years of, of work, five years of real writing, but So let's go back now. It's the late 90s. Remember what was going on back then with like the neo cigar craze and people started swing dancing again. And it was just the hint of the cocktail revolution. And at that time, I was studying to be a sommelier. I had made this pact with myself at 25 that by 30, I would either be a published author or a sommelier. So there I was. Uh, going through the court of master sommeliers, I'm studying booze, wine, spirits, cigars. My wife called it the vice academy. And meanwhile, I'm I'm trying to up my game myself. But the only resources out there, are like Amy Vanderbilt's Guide to Etiquette, and I didn't really need to know how to dress for a tea party, <laughs> or like you know how to wear, how to iron my morning coat. I needed some real world stuff. Yeah, at at 25, I didn't have the kind of scratch to be like, how should I address my valet in front of the queen? <laughs> and the the guidebooks of the day were written in a response to the wealthy codifying what the social rules should be. So now that I'm I'm diving into how do I want to behave? How do I want to treat my friends? How do I want to host a gathering? How do I want to buy gifts for a soiree? for a happening, how do I want to send correspondence, I started writing it myself. I'm like, well, these are the situations I'm finding myself in, and there's a code of behavior. There's a code of how to properly skinny dip, you know, I came to learn. While I was in wine school, I was running the wine program at this amazing restaurant in Atlanta, and we would finish up, and it was the dead of summer in the ATL, And we'd ditch our aprons, and we'd grab extra bottles of wine, and we'd hop the fence at the Hampton Inn, and we'd all end up in the pool. And there'd be every now and again the one fool, idiot guy who couldn't keep his hands and his wits about him, and we would toss him out. And over the course of that summer, we came to understand – that skinny dipping meant that there were certain customs that had to be followed and presumptions that should and should not be made. So I wrote those down, and I find myself in an elevator codifying what elevator etiquette or jukebox etiquette. Well, let, well, let, me, pa- let, things- let me get
0: you to pause on, on that one if I can, Jason. Now, I understand your experience as a sommelier. What makes you an authority when it comes to booze and things that accompany booze like cigars? You explained – how you became an authority on skinny-dipping etiquette, but things like elevator etiquette, for example. What makes you an authority on that? Why should people listen to you when it comes to elevator etiquette?
1: You know, I'm the kind of person who is constantly on input mode. I'm I'm recording. As a writer, as an interviewer like you – you know i'm i'm looking observationally at this at this moment so when i found myself approaching an elevator you know i always had a notebook in my back pocket this was long before the digital age and i would watch just how do people behave and what are ways if we want to tinker with the social customs i bet you'd know pretty quickly how to make people feel uncomfortable And the uh, opposite side of that is how can I put people at ease? How can I make that two-and-a-half-minute ride, this sliver of a moment of a day, actually turn into something enjoyable? Is there a way to lift spirits? Is there a way to engage? Is there a way that by the time the doors open back at the lobby, people are laughing or smiling or being like, You know, almost forgetting to step out because we're still engaged in a moment. Instead of saying that an elevator is a pause from life, like this is your life happening just in time and space vertically, right? So I started looking through that lens, and I became an expert simply because while everyone else was kind of droning on, that was a chance to stare at your newspaper. It was a chance to stand looking at the numbers I chose to engage with that moment and watch the way people responded and uh, toggle the knobs of social engagement to see what made people love it.
0: No, that is uh, terrific. Now, I I saw in researching you that there was this magazine uh, I don't even really know if it got off the ground. Called the Modern Gent, and there is a website, The Modern Gent. Did the Modern Gentleman actually take the form of a magazine at one point?
1: You know, the uh, Modern Gentleman early on, my uh, my attorneys wanted to protect the intellectual property of the content and the title, right. but the title itself was too, I'm making air quotes here, common to protect. Right. Sure, so there are actually a lot of modern gentleman things out there, which would get my attorney uh, irked. And for me, I was like, look, if this universe expands, having more modern gents, is a good thing, it may be bad for the intellectual property of protecting it, right. but it's great that more and more people want to express that part of themselves. So there are other modern gentlemen, there's only one book series, but there are other uh, expressions of of that term, and I can't know them all. I can just hope that anyone who's chosen to get behind that moniker can also uh, express the spirit of it and not simply the brand of it.
0: Got it. Okay. Makes sense to me. Now, uh, the practical advice for the people, but especially the men listening to us right now. By the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Jason Tesoro. He is a writer, photojournalist, sommelier, and the author of the Modern Gentleman book series. Give us a few uh, modern gentleman tips. You've alluded to your history as a sommelier. Let's start with drinking, whether we're doing wine or cocktails. Um, I don't have the book in front of me, but one of the things that I think I'm remembering um, about drinking is how to order a cocktail. How do you order as a proper gentleman, a cocktail?
1: (laughs) So, uh, Last month, I was in Kentucky. I hosted a series of events for Derby Week, which I highly recommend. By the way, it is a gentleman's holiday to the nth degree—the Kentucky Derby. So, after uh, days of of racing and fun, you know, the the main event is Saturday, but there are events happening all through the week, and bars in Kentucky and Louisville stay open until four. So there are a lot of opportunities to order a drink well after the sensible hours and you know you're into the other side of midnight right. and the rules are a little more flexible after midnight right so here I find myself at 1 at 2 at 3 a.m. ordering a drink and watching the way other people order a drink so I come sliding into a bar uh around 3 and I go up and, like, my typical drink for feeling out a bartender is a proper daiquiri. So I keep that in my back pocket when I feel like having a crisp drink, but I'm also confident that whoever's behind the bar knows what they're doing. Well, 3 a.m. is not the time. For a proper daiquiri or even an <laughs> improper daiquiri right it's a time for a two ingredient drink it's a great time for a g and t it's a great time for a tequila a mezcal neat around the rock so part of the social contract of ordering a drink is not you showing off how much you know or think you know and trying to stump the bartender it's reading the room it's looking at the mood and mode am i wearing Uh, A pair of sandals? Am I wearing a pair of dress shoes? Am I in cowboy boots? What's the music like? If I'm in a a rock and roll and a honky tonk, you know, this is a great place for a cold beer or or give me a very simple drink, but I'm not ordering a seven-layer pouce Cafe. (laughs) So part of it is what am I thirsty for, certainly, but the other is think of your drink as an accessory in the space. And my jacket isn't finished without a pocket square, so if your left hand isn't finished without a concoction, what's the appropriate thing? Am I looking for the the cute little uh, drink umbrella because I'm standing at the edge of a beach bar overlooking a band, or am I standing there surrounded like body to body with people in a hot dance club where the bartender has got like 9.2 seconds to prepare a drink. And I've already got a crisp $20 bill and an order at my lips. So you are participating in a conversation and you need to say the appropriate thing
0: uh now it makes sense to me and uh, one piece of advice that i always reiterate that i learned from your book is if you see a bar is crowded and people are already waiting five or six uh, for for deep for a drink that's also not the time to be ordering something that's complicated and takes a long time to make because you meet a lot, make a lot of enemies quickly one aspect of culture that i think people experience every day but they don't necessarily think about there being a gentlemanly way to handle it is driving but you're right there are a couple of things that a gentleman should do as a driver what is that
1: oh my gosh my my favorite thing to engage in as a driver is the use of the horn and the <laughs> the only negative i have my, my wife bought a, a tesla over the over the shutdown and there weren't too many people on the road so it took until very recently for us to get back into traffic situations elon musk forgot to make the tesla so that you could ba-dip, 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 use the horn with that little bit of percussion and you're in staten island everyone from jersey i was born in patterson Around me, everyone used the horn deftly and being able to communicate. There's a big difference from, hey, see you later, grandma. And, you know, you are stuck at a green light and no one's going. (laughs) So using your horn to communicate, uh, the Tesla only has one tone. There is no like, hey, I see you on the corner, Johnny. It's like it's it's kind of it's annoying. Um, So using your horn. Secondly, like for me. Driving, uh, I feel like most people in the in the South are driving like they got no place to go and driving with some meaningfulness and purposefulness, especially when everyone else seems to be lollygagging and staring at their phones. Uh, I used to drive for for sport and pleasure. Now I feel like I'm driving from within an inch of my life to stay safe out <laughs> there. It's a different scene from 20 years ago when the distractions – were simply the the cool t-top next to you and the tunes blaring. Um, the gentlemanliness of driving has definitely shifted. Um, I will say a one fast way to identify yourself as a non-gent. Is to pull up at the toll booth and not know what the bleep to do.
0: <laughs> well, what about something as simple as table manners? You know, one of the one of the things that I was raised to do is that if there was a lady at the table and she's getting up or sitting down, you stand up. But now I find that I'm I'm the odd man out when I stand up when a lady sits or sit or or stand or stands up and leaves the table, and now everyone looks at me like I'm a strange person. What are you supposed to do as a modern 21st century gentleman?
1: Ah, Now you're getting to the crux of things, Frank. So etiquette is a, a code of rules that's evolved and it's fluid. And just like our language is changing, right? Your vocabulary, I'm 50 and my vocabulary at 50 is richer than it was, at 15, sure. but it's also been truncated, because I have to adjust my language for the people around me. When I was the youngest man in the room, I was constantly reaching for richer vocabulary. Now, i mind, uh, I made an invitation for my, one of my teens graduating high school, and instead of saying, respondez, s'il vous plaît, <laughs> I put, yay, nay, your <laughs> response, and I put an email address. The codes of etiquette have gone through these ebbs and flows depending upon where society was at the time, and it means that there have been zeniths and there have been naders in culture. And I would say that where we are in, in culture and civilization right now is one of those dips. And it's a time when people are, are struggling and are trying to figure out life in a way that it can feel kind of tone deaf to want to wrap someone across the knuckles for being a heathen at table. When in truth, like what's going on behind the scenes has uh, a higher difficulty level than whether or not I know how to use uh, my escargot tongue mm-hmm. So the, the rules – have necessarily slipped, and I've I've battled this for the past two or three years because while I've made my career on uh, not only understanding these rules and codifying them and helping teach other young gents, I've also had to realize that now is not the time for us to reinforce some of these rules. However, if you and I don't keep the torch lit right. for civility. And don't teach a new generation on how they should alight from the table. How will they find these modes in the future? And what does it mean overall? Like, it, if we're in the middle of a war, is that time to be like, oh, pardon me, milady, let me dust off <laughs> your seat on the tank, right? Like. We we know that gender fluidity and the Me Too movement has led to changes in our social custom with men and women kissing socially. It's actually also led to the way that I kiss men. I have kissed a lot more men on the cheek in the past six months as people are coming out, and we know that whether you're gay or straight, that one way that men can greet each other is that, like, sort of Italian kiss on the cheek – And this is very different from how things were. Well, that's why the rules are evolving. That's why they're written in non-indelible ink, because they're meant to evolve and grow. And, yes, I would like – I have five children. I have three boys, ranging from 9 to 18. And I would love for them to be superlatives at table. But the truth is I've really tried to reinforce more their character – So that they recognize on how to be in conversation and how to be in relationship as opposed to following by the letter of the law. This is what daddy said you had to do Mm. to be a gentle table. And as long as they are excellent house guests and respectful of their host, whether or not they chew with their mouth open 0.1% of the time or grab the right piece of silver – they're going to be forgiven because they're just good eggs.
0: Well, uh, that's certainly, I guess, the most important thing that any of us could hope to be, right? Uh, But what you mentioned, male-female relations and the evolving nature of courtship. What about dating? Uh, Let's say you're uh, looking to court a lady Uh, maybe it's somebody that you've been introduced to from a mutual friend or maybe it's someone that you meet at a bar or court a fella by the way uh because as you mentioned sexual uh, sexual fluidity and gender fluidity is all the rage these days what is the proper and uh, respectful way yet the effective way for a modern gentleman to pursue courtship
1: well so i've been fortunate enough to uh, be consulted by um, many gents in the past couple of years as the rules have really changed, mm. right? And even COVID, uh, it has changed the courtship rituals and having to date uh, digitally and then uh, move at a much slower pace. How does one express their ardor? So these ongoing conversations I have with the men for, for whom I consult. And one of the big things that comes up is how do you make that leap from we started dating digitally, whether it's through an app or just meeting through one of the platforms? How do you make the leap from there to actually dating? And and we've lost a lot of that organic side of, hey, we met at an outing. We met at a function. We met organically right. as a friend of a friend. So you have to take this uh, this synthetic piece of profiles have been linked up by algorithm and convert that into something that nature would have put in front of us inevitably, right? So the the first tip there is you still have to lead with your authenticity. It's very tempting. And you have the tools in front of you to Photoshop not only your picture, but your persona. I think it's very tempting for people to lead with what they want to be as opposed to who they are and the biggest thing that i tell gents is they're going to find out who you are anyway why are we false advertising Mm. so you you can lead with a a polished version of yourself think of the difference between you attending a wedding in your pjs and you attending in your finest bespoke suit. So you are allowed, of course, to dress it up and and polish off some of the rough edges, but you're not allowed to go as a fundamentally different person than who you really are because you think that'll be more alluring to someone you're dating. So that's number one is being a, a truthful representation of who you are. Secondly, when you are converting from the digital to the in-person. You have to think not just about how you want to present, but think about putting someone else at ease. It it is now a time of fear. People are afraid of meeting someone new. They have someone queued up, hey, can you call me like 30 minutes into the date? Let's have a, a, a safe word about whether or not you're okay. Let's meet in a public space. All of these things are at play because people are feeling uncomfortable. I don't know if I can trust a stranger. I don't know if I can believe that they're who they say they are. So how can I put them at ease and finding a way to use courtship to – Get someone into their pleasure center. This becomes your job in courtship. You should take this as your number one priority is to make them feel comfortable, not you in the best possible light. Ooh, I'm going to arrive early. I'm going to get the lay of the land. I'm going to get to know the server or the bartender. I'm going to look over the menu. I'm going to do a, a, a little Pre-game and find out are are there any kind of food allergies? Are there any clues from their profile that would let me know? You know they've traveled to Italy. Let me find a dish. Here's cacio e pepe is on the menu. Show that you are paying attention and not simply thinking about how to put you in the best light, but wow. how to actually make the other person feel good in their own skin.
0: It's uh, great advice. I I could talk to you about this stuff all day, and I hope you'll come back. But there's two final areas I want to explore with you before you get out of here. One has to do with um, picking your brain as a sommelier. What if you want to look the part of a wine expert, but you really don't know where to begin? What's a a pro tip that can help an amateur look for and explore different things in wine, or at least look like they know what they're doing when it comes time for them to be the person that gets to sample the wine before everybody gets a full glass poured for them.
1: Ah, nice, excellent. So, you know, that ritual is actually rooted in practicum. When the server brings you the bottle, uh, first thing I always do is I put my hand on the bottle, and it 's a great way to look mm. like you know what you 're doing because in in fact it means you do and you 're feeling for the temperature, especially uh, on the on the eve of summer here, feeling the wine to make sure that the reds have been properly cellared and are not too hot, and also to assure that your whites aren 't bracingly cold, mm. and most restaurants over chill their whites and under-chill their red. So you put your hand on the bottle as a way of confirming that this wine is ready for consumption. Secondly, when they pour the wine in your glass, they're not asking you whether or not you like it. They're asking you to confirm that the wine is sound, meaning the wine has survived its trip from bottle to table with a natural cork, Maybe it all has a screw cap to make sure that the wine is indeed healthy. So, what you do is you pick up your glass, you swirl the glass to introduce some air into the wine, you put your nose into the glass and you inhale. And you are simply, you will know, even if you don't know anything about wine, you will know when you smell a bad wine because it's unpleasant and it will wrinkle your nose and furrow your brow. And if the wine doesn't do that, you can put the glass back on the table and say, Yes, please. Thank you. The wine is sound. Any of those phrases indicate to the server, Yes, please go ahead and pour. So I never taste the wine unless. It is to confirm what Hmm. my nose thinks is happening is that there's something wrong with the glass. This is part of the contract of you ordering the bottle. (laughs) They tell you what the wine is. They pour the wine. You say the wine is sound, and it gets poured. The next tip I'll give to you in ordering off the list. Is if there is a wine that is unpronounceable, a grape you've never heard of from a place you didn't even know grew wine, <laughs> you should order that wine. It is impossible for a wine to be unpronounceable from a place you've never heard of, from a, a place that didn't, uh, you know, grew wine, and, to be there and to not be delicious. In fact, it has to be delicious. A sommelier puts that haioritico, blau franches, cota de volte, emir, Durif, ferment on the list because they want you to try it, and they typically put it at a less margin because they know they have to make it more attractive in order to get people to order it. Mm. So one of the hidden gems on a list is the unpronounceable grape. I love it. I love or it. Or one from a place you've never heard of. Uh, Absolutely. Jason,
0: I- I'm going to have to end it there. I very much enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to do this again in the future. You're a wealth of information and uh, incredibly entertaining. And uh, I- I'll look forward to the next book in your Modern Gentleman series and uh, our- even more so our next conversation on the radio.
1: Grazie, Frank. Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.